Well, please take a seat. Let's all pray together. Father, as we've just sung in those closing words of that hymn, we pray now that you would grant us grace to read and mark your holy word and to receive its truths with meekness and then live by its precepts. And we pray that as we come to these verses now of Luke chapter 22, that Father, you would show us more of the wonder and grace of our Lord Jesus, because he is so very precious to us, and we thank you for him. Help us to know him more as we come to hear his words now. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're back in Luke's gospel uh, once again this evening. It's Luke 22, verses 31 through 38. And if possible, it'd be great to have that uh, passage of scripture open in front of you. Now, the, the verses that we turn to this evening are, as you've probably noticed already, the very last words that Jesus spoke whilst in the upper room with his disciples, at least as far as Luke tells us. These are the closing words of that upper room discourse. Jesus is about to head over with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, of course, there he will be arrested uh, before being put, in tr put on trial and then crucified the next day. And these words of Jesus, therefore, are of great significance to us. And we'll see as we look at them this evening that they are very hard-hitting words in many ways, but at the same time, they are filled with astonishing grace, and they're intended for our encouragement as Christians today. And so tonight, as we look at this short section, I'd like us to notice three encouragements that Jesus um, offers to his disciples, especially Peter himself, and we'll see how these encouragements can be encouragements for us as well as God's people today. So first of all, let's notice this, that Satan can attack Christians, but Jesus prays for them. Satan can attack Christians, but Jesus prays for them. And at the start of verse 31, Jesus turns to Peter, and using Peter's original name, of course, he says to him, Simon, Simon. And the repetition of the name, of course, underlines, doesn't it, the fact that Jesus is about to say something very serious, something very weighty to Peter, something to which Peter must listen something that he must pay attention to and take to heart. And you can imagine Peter, can't you, sitting there in the upper room thinking to himself, well, what is Jesus about to say to me? And this is what Peter is about to hear. Jesus says to him that Peter has been and in fact is the focus of a particular attack of Satan. Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. 
You understand the, the imagery that Jesus employs there in that figure of speech. When wheat is being sifted, what happens is that the, the grain is repeatedly and quickly and violently even shaken in a sieve. And the person who is doing the sifting holds the sieve and it has all the grain in it and, and they shake it vigorously. And as they do that, the, the grain comes apart, falls apart. As the, the grain is separated, the wheat is separated from the chaff. And you see, Jesus is using this figure of speech. He's saying that Satan desires to put Peter through this kind of ordeal. We might say Peter wants to, or Satan wants to shake Peter violently. He wants to make him come apart in that ordeal. He wants to sift him like wheat. We have a similar kind of idiom in English, don't we? We talk about someone going through the mill. It's a somewhat related idea, isn't it? This idea that Jesus conveys here when he says that Satan wants to sift Peter like wheat. He wants, Satan wants Peter to come apart in this ordeal he's about to go through. And of course, what that refers to in the very first instance is the event of that very evening when Peter will cave in to the pressure and he will deny even knowing Jesus. And yet it also refers to what the future has in store for Peter as well. Of course, the way in which the enemy will constantly be against him in his ministry. Make no mistake, Peter, says Jesus, Satan is real. Satan is the enemy. Satan is against you. And Satan wants to destroy you. And yet even in the face of this satanic opposition, Jesus has some wonderful words of encouragement for Peter. Gracious encouragement for him. Notice to start with that there is a limit, isn't there, to Satan's activity. Did you notice that in the passage? It's implied, even though it's not mentioned explicitly. Jesus says that Satan has demanded that he may have Peter. And that phrase implies, doesn't it, that Satan cannot just do whatever he wants with Peter. It implies that he has to ask first. And he can put that request in the form of a demand, but nonetheless, he's still asking permission, isn't he? Reminds us, doesn't it, of the ordeal that Job went through as well. We know from the book of Job that Satan could not lay a finger on Job without God's permission first. And likewise, Satan could not attack Peter without first trying to demand God to allow this to happen. So we shouldn't miss that point in, in the passage, that though Satan's power is very real, and though his opposition to the Christian is very real, it is also limited. And he can only do what God allows him, permits him to do. And then the main source of encouragement for Peter is found in those next few words. Jesus says to him, but, is the encouragement, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And of course, Peter is not going to come through this ordeal shining, is he? As we know, in the midst of that temptation, Peter would cave in 
to the pressure. Just a, a few hours after Jesus had spoken these words to him. And yet dreadful though Peter's denial undoubtedly was, Peter did not fall completely. So as someone has put it, Peter's failure will be a failure of nerve, not a heart denial of Jesus. And so he would come through this ordeal, bruised by Satan for sure, and yet he would come through it still trusting in Jesus. And Jesus tells Peter here that the only reason why Peter's faith would persevere through all of that was because Jesus himself was upholding that faith. Peter's faith in Jesus was upheld by Jesus because Jesus was interceding for Peter. Jesus was praying for him. And we see that by grace alone, in Christ alone, and through the intercession of Christ alone, Peter would persevere in the faith. And then later on, when Peter was writing his first letter in the Bible, the book of First Peter, remember how he would say in the opening verses of that letter that Christians are, by God's power, being guarded through faith. I imagine that as he wrote those words, his own experience here was, was in his mind, how thanks to Christ's intercession for him, he was being guarded by God's power through faith. And though Jesus is, of course, speaking specifically about Peter here, the, the same principle holds true for all believers, doesn't it? Satan can attack Christians, but Jesus prays for us. So Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Then in a very similar way, the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 7, assures us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It is a wonderful comfort to know that even as we as Christians face spiritual warfare and the enemy is against us, and the enemy, as it were, wants to put us through the mill, the enemy wants to sift us like wheat, he wants to make us fall apart as Christians. But whilst the enemy is doing that, Jesus is on the throne of heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he prays for us. And it is only thanks to that ongoing, perpetual intercession of Jesus that we can come through all of these trials with our faith intact. J.C. Ryle writes these words, the continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great miracle. His enemies are so mighty and his strength is so small, the world is full of snares, and his heart is so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. The passage before us explains his safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession for him. There is a watchful advocate who is daily pleading for him, seeing all his daily necessities and obtaining daily supplies of mercy and grace for his soul. Christ lives 
and therefore our faith shall not fail. The work that he does for his people is not yet over. He is still appearing in the presence of God for them and doing for their souls what he did for Peter. And Christian, let that encourage you when you know that the enemy is against you and you're struggling to keep going as a Christian and your faith feels very, very weak. Remember this, Satan can attack us, but Jesus prays for us. Louis Burkhoff writes these words. He says, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious. And against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease. And that we may come out victoriously in the end. Robert Murray McShane sums it up beautifully. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Satan can attack us, but Jesus prays for us. That's the first encouragement that we find in these verses. And here's the second one that we find. That Christians can deny Jesus, but Jesus restores them. Christians can deny Jesus, but Jesus restores them. And as he hears about this impending attack of Satan against him, Peter is very confident, isn't he? He's very sure of himself. And he says to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's very proud of his steadfastness as a Christian believer. It's almost as if he's saying to Jesus, well, Satan can throw what he wants against me and it's going to just bounce straight off. Satan can have me thrown into prison or... He can put me to death, but nothing at all will make me deny you, Jesus. You can count on me. And it's so ironic, isn't it, that what Satan would actually use to cause Peter's capitulation was not imprisonment or death, but actually just a, a little servant girl. And so much for Peter's bravado. Before we criticize Peter too much, we should pause and ask ourselves, well, how little, how little has it taken for me on occasions to stay silent rather than speak of my faith in Jesus? We're very similar, aren't we? Jesus gives something of a reality check uh, to Peter. He says to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Imagine how he felt, Peter, as he heard those words. I'm sure he could scarcely take them in. That within just a few hours, he would have denied Jesus, not once, but actually three times. And yet once again, we see that there is wonderful, gracious encouragement given to Peter by Jesus. And the assurance is simply this, that Christians, like Peter, can deny Jesus, but Jesus restores them. Notice what Jesus says to Peter there at the end of verse 32. He says to him, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
And we see, don't we, that there are two parts of this restoration of Peter that Jesus mentions here. Uh, the first part is repentance. Jesus says, when you have turned again, to repent means literally to turn around. That's what the word means. And in Christian terms, repentance means turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus, going his way rather than going sin's way. And yes, Peter would make a terrible mess of things that evening, wouldn't he? He would go so far even as denying three times that he knew Jesus. And yet through repentance, he could be restored. And this is what we see playing out in John chapter 21, isn't it? On the shore of Lake Galilee, where Jesus restores Peter. Just as three times Peter had denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asks Peter to affirm his love for Jesus. And through that repentance, Peter found this gracious restoration. And yet, repentance or, or turning again is not the only part of his restoration. As well as that, there is a, another gracious step further, isn't there? Jesus says to him, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And you see, Jesus is showing that following his repentance, Peter will have the opportunity to serve his brothers and sisters in Christ once again. And in particular, it will be a ministry that will involve seeking to strengthen his fellow believers. And in God's strange providence, there is again irony here, isn't there? That the man who was found to be so weak will now be used to make others stronger. You see the irony there, don't you? His restoration will involve this renewed service for Christ's sake. And again, Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter here, but again, there is a principle that applies, doesn't it, to, to all Christians, that we can deny Jesus, and yet Jesus graciously restores us. And that really should comfort us and encourage us when we look at our own failings as Christians. Now, maybe we've not denied Jesus as blatantly as Peter did, although maybe we have. But either way, we all know, don't we, that our Christian lives have fallen so far short of witnessing to Jesus as they ought to have done. Those many occasions when we've kept silent about our faith in Christ, when we know we ought to have spoken up. Those many occasions when we have allowed ourselves just to drift into sinful patterns of thought or speech or behavior. Those times when we have denied Jesus by our lifestyle. And wonderfully and graciously, Jesus restores his people when they sin like that. And he restores us firstly through repentance. That is, uh, through calling us to turn away from that sinful behavior, whatever it is. And to recommit ourselves to Christ, reaffirm our faith in him and our love for him. And I don't know, but maybe it is something that you need to do this very evening that there are ways in which you know you've drifted away from Jesus and to all intents and purposes you've denied him. In the way that you've lived, you've distanced yourself from him. And you see Jesus is saying to you this evening through his word that the way of restoration begins with repentance, turning again to him, recommitting yourself to him, reaffirming your faith 
in him? Is that something you need to do? And as we've seen, restoration goes further still, doesn't it? Because when Jesus restores a person, he also brings them back to renewed service. And in God's strange providence, it may even be the fact that the sin into which you have drifted becomes the means by which you are then able to get alongside other Christians and warn them about the consequences of doing that. Just as Peter, whose moment of weakness led to him eventually to strengthen his brothers and sisters. In God's providence, maybe even the sin into which we drift is an occasion for us to strengthen and encourage our brothers and sisters when our service of Christ is renewed. It is encouraging to know, isn't it? Christians can mess up very badly. And in our worst moments, we can even deny Jesus. And in grace, Jesus restores us. He restores us through repentance and then graciously he brings us back into his renewed service. And then thirdly and finally, as we look just briefly at verses 35 to to 38, notice this, that the world can oppose Christians, but Jesus provides for them. The world can oppose Christians, but Jesus provides for them. And to start with, Jesus here at the start of this paragraph asks a question of the disciples, doesn't he? He says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And you see, Jesus is getting his disciples to think back to the missions that he sent them on in the past. He's referring back to chapter 9 of of Luke's gospel, where Jesus sent out the 12 apostles to go and teach and heal. And he's also referring back to chapter 10, where he'd sent out 72 of his followers on a, a similar kind of mission. And on those missions, Jesus told them not to take any basic provisions with them, not to take any money or any spare sandals or a bag of clothes with them or or such like. They were to just go literally in the clothes that they were stood up in. And why was that the case? Why did they go like that? And it was the case because Jesus assured them on those missions that some people would receive the gospel. As they went around these different towns and villages, people in every location would respond to them and accept Christ. And then out of a sense of Christian fellowship with them, would share with them everything that was needed. And so on those missions, Christ's disciples were to depend on Christ's provision by receiving the support of fellow believers. And so when Jesus says to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And the the disciples say, no, we didn't lack anything. They, They knew Christ's provision just as he had promised and that provision came to them through the generosity of those to whom they were ministering on those missionary journeys. And yet Jesus says here, doesn't he, that that in the future their ministry, their gospel work is going to look very different. And he says to them, but now note the change but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one you see the change don't you now they do have to take supplies with them they need to take money with them they need to take food and clothing and as well as that very strangely Jesus says they're going to need a sword as well 
this is the, the tricky bit, isn't it? What on earth does Jesus mean by that? Why do they need swords? Well, the first thing to say is that Jesus doesn't mean this literally. And that's what we find out in verse 38. The disciples say to Jesus, look, Lord, here are two swords. So it's like they're saying to, to Jesus, well, here's what we've got so far, but we're going to obviously need a few more swords to go around. And Jesus just says to them, it is enough. Or, or stop talking like that. Stop thinking in those terms. He's not speaking literally here about the disciples needing a sword with them. This is a proverbial saying, not a literal saying. When he says you're going to need money and you're going to need a bag of provisions and you're going to need a sword, what he means is this, if I can paraphrase. Jesus is saying, in those previous missionary journeys, you didn't need to take any resources with you because on those missionary journeys, the gospel received a good enough welcome in the world that there were believers in every town who would provide for you. And yet now, in the future, gospel work is going to feel very different. And you're going to need to take provisions with you. It implies, doesn't it, the response is not going to be quite the same in the future. Jesus is saying, if you're going to do gospel ministry in the future, don't expect that people will give a warm welcome to you anymore. Don't expect there always to be people to provide for you. And in fact, expect hostility. Expect the sword. That's what Jesus is saying. And why is this the case? Why does Jesus say that gospel ministry in the future is going to feel very different? And the answer that he gives is verse 37. He says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And in those words, Jesus takes the, the well-known prophecy of Isaiah 53 and he applies it to himself. He says he is the, the suffering servant of whom Isaiah wrote. And part of his suffering is going to consist in the world considering him to be a transgressor, numbering him with the transgressors and therefore crucifying him as a criminal. And the point is this, that there is a connection between how the world treats Jesus and how the world treats the Christian. That if that is what the world did to Jesus, what will the world think of his messengers who take his gospel out into the world? Jesus is saying, don't expect there will always be a warm welcome for you. Don't expect that the world will always be ready to provide all that you need. And in fact, expect hostility from the world. Expect the sword as you take the gospel out into the world. And how do we apply this to, to our own ministry here? Well, I, I think the point is, is this, that the world can oppose us, but Jesus provides for us. And how does he provide for us in, in this context of hostility in the world towards the gospel? Now, of course, Jesus could provide for gospel work by raining everything down from heaven that we ever needed. He could do that if he, he so wished. He could send miracles every day. It would be very exciting, wouldn't it, if, if he did that? 
And of course, Jesus does provide in amazing ways for his church. And at times it, it leaves us in no doubt at all that, that his hand was clearly at work in some set of circumstances coming about in which we see the provision of Christ in unusual ways. And yet I have to say that that is not normally how he provides for his people, is it? And normally his provision plays out in line with verses 35 to 38. We could sum it up like this, that Christ, by his word, calls his servants to make wise use of ordinary means so that gospel ministry is provided for. That's what he's saying to his disciples here, isn't it? Make wise use of ordinary means. Take provisions with you so that gospel ministry can be provided for. And I know that that doesn't sound very exciting to you. It's not very signs and wonders, is it? It's not very impressive outwardly. But that's how it is. That's how Jesus provides for us and for our ministry in a world that is very often hostile to the gospel. By his word, he calls his servants to make wise use of, of ordinary means so that gospel ministry is provided for. And so it means that as Christians, we, we set aside some money each week or each month so that we can give to gospel work. It means that we use the, the church budget wisely. It means that we don't try and depend on the world somehow to provide for our ministry. There are many ways in which we do this, aren't they? Thinking in practical, wise terms of how to make sure there are provisions set aside for gospel work. Ask yourself, what will that look like for you in your circumstances? As Christ, in his word, calls us to make wise use of these ordinary means in order that the work of the gospel can be provided for. The world can oppose us, but in this very ordinary way, Jesus provides for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the, the gracious words of Jesus which we come across in these verses of Luke 22. We thank you that even though Satan can attack us, that Jesus prays for us and we know that he is at your right hand now and he is interceding for us. And we know that it's only thanks to his continual intercession for us that we are preserved and our faith is upheld even through many trials. And we thank you that even though in so many ways we let Jesus down, we deny him, that graciously he restores us just as he restored Peter. And he leads us into repentance. And he brings us even into new service in his purposes. And so we pray for ourselves tonight that you would help us to repent of any ways in which we have denied Jesus or are denying Jesus. And then help us to serve him anew and to strengthen one another. And we see also in these verses that we are to expect hostility in our ministry. And yet Jesus provides all that we need. We've seen that that provision very often comes through the, the ordinary means of Christian believers being wise with their resources, planning well, and setting aside what they're able to do so for the work of the gospel. 
And so, Father, help us to live like that as wise disciples as we share the good news of Jesus with those around us. And it's in his strong and precious name we ask all of these things. Amen.